0: All right, welcome to another lecture with Francis Tavern Museum, this time in the afternoon if you are one of our normal evening guests. Thank you all for joining us in person for braving the rain uh, and at home for making time in your busy day to be with us. If you are joining us virtually during the Q&A at the end of the lecture, we will be able to ask your questions as well. Please remember you can drop those in the Q&A at any time during the lecture. We'll be monitoring it and trying to get to as many of those as we can. The book we will be hearing some about along with some other stories today is America's First Plague. It'll be on sale in person for those of you at the lecture. And if there are any left over, you can come to the museum after today and pick up a copy as well. But before we get to all that, um, I just wanted to mention that this is going to be my last program with the museum. Um, Thank you all for attending these lectures and other museum programs. I have worked over the past five years. It's been my pleasure to welcome you all. And I hope I'll get to see you in the future somewhere else and that you will keep visiting Francis Tavern Museum. So that's out of the way. Let's get to it as always. The views of the speakers are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of sons of the revolution in the state of new york or its francis tavern museum to introduce today's speaker robert watson has published over 45 books several of which have won awards are an in international translation and have been featured at book festivals and tv documentaries he holds the title distinguished professor of history and Avron Fogelman, research professor at Lynn University. Today, he'll be telling us some history stories from the founding era of the United States. So I'm gonna turn it over
1: to you. Thanks, Sarah. And thank you, Sarah, for your service to Francis Tavern. I love this place. Uh, Every time I come to New York City, I visit, and I've had the pleasure of giving several public programs with Sarah. So you'll be missed, and I wish you uh, well. Thanks for gathering on this rainy day, right? I was ready to build an ark. I was down to Times Square. It took two hours to get here. I had two drivers bail on me. It was, the traffic was amazing. It was coming down in buckets. So uh, thanks everybody. Uh, Let me recognize in the back of the room, Ambassador Gillian Sorensen just joined us. She was the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations. Uh, So thank you, Madam Ambassador. Uh, So I wanna tell a couple of stories from the founding era. I wrote two books this summer. Uh, Both uh, were inspired by recent events. Uh, The first book that came out this summer was called When Washington Burned, Um, and the British burned the capital city on August 24th, 1814, and I had the idea to write the book while I was sitting at home watching January 6th play out. Uh, I taught at Georgetown. Uh, Both my kids go to college in in D.C. My son was a tour guide at the Capitol, and of course, the Capitol building is our national treasure, right, our temple of liberty, so I was just outraged. Uh, watching uh, those events. I felt helpless. Uh, my first reaction, I said, I'm going to buy a plane ticket and get a baseball bat and go defend the Capitol. But uh, I decided to do what I always do, and that is write a book. So I wrote a book about it. Uh, so the Capitol City was, and the Capitol Building were burned, as I said, August twenty fourth, 1814, by the British. That was during the War of 1812, which was a bizarre conflict. The War of 1812 was called by Harry Truman, quote, unquote, the silliest damn war we ever fought. It was a name for one year, but fought for two and a half. It never should have been fought. And after two and a half years of fighting, it was an inglorious tie and everything stayed the same. Uh, There were many reasons why the war was fought real quickly. Just three. Uh, One was legitimate. That was something called impressment. Anybody heard of impressment? Uh, The British were at war with Napoleon in Europe. And Napoleon had probably the greatest army at the time, Britain had the greatest Navy. So one of the ways Britain's gonna defeat Napoleon is to blockade every port in Europe. Therefore, Napoleon can't export, import, or move his troops by water. So it's gonna be a stranglehold, right, everyone? Lincoln did the same thing during the Civil War with Operation Anaconda by blockading the South. Um, So that's what they're gonna do. But to blockade all those ports, you need a lot of sailors. And Britain's a wonderful place. England's a wonderful place, but it's a rather resource-poor, crowded island. So they didn't have enough sailors. So what they decided to do was just press into service some of the best sailors in the world, and that would be New England fishermen, uh, merchant captains. So the British on a warship would literally stop in the oceans, an American commercial ship or fishing boat, and at bayonet point, drag men off the ship and say, welcome to His Majesty's Navy. Uh, Now, we don't have accurate numbers. I suppose we'll never. In the book I wrote, I estimate that in the years leading up to the War of 1812, about 12,000 Americans were pressed into service. That's probably a reason to go to war. Every family in New England had lost a son, a brother or father. Two other reasons of the many that weren't so good, and I think this is why the War of 1812 never makes the textbooks, because we started it. We were the belligerents. Uh, and we tied. Um, One was Southerners wanted to expand slavery across the continent, maybe into Canada, to the Southwest, which is now, was taken from Mexico, right, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, into Mexico, maybe into Cuba, and the war would provide cover for Southerners to spread slavery all across the, the hemisphere, quite frankly. And the other one was Southerners wanted to basically eliminate the indigenous population they wanted to commit genocide on a continental wide level Uh, and the war would give them cover to do it so yikes Um, now the war is going horribly we lose every battle basically even though we have a five to ten to one advantage over a few canadians a few british and a few indians but the british and the canadians had two secret weapons isaac brock he was basically the george washington of uh, canada and tecumseh I think one of the greatest uh, native chiefs in history, big tough guy. And uh, they whooped the American army time and time again. We're so frustrated after embarrassing defeats that we finally find a great general. He was an explorer who discovered a mountain in Colorado. His name was Zebulon Pike. And Pike had a major army with an armada of warships and he sailed across the Great Lakes to sack the Canadian capital of York, which is now Toronto. Um, they were sacking York easily. We annihilated a few defenders there. So Pike sits down on a rock with some of the captives and said, listen, if you surrender, you have my word as a gentleman. And he was a gentleman. We will spare the town, spare the fort, let you surrender with dignity. As they're doing that, a cannonball from one of the naval ships hits the supply depot, the armory with all the powder, creating a massive explosion. More men died in the explosion than died in the battle knocks the walls of the fort down, knock trees over. This is how massive it was. Many men suffered hearing loss, concussions. Just this was how big the explosion was. It sent a rock, a surgeon, an American surgeon treating the wounded, said that the rock was the size of a harpsichord. It sent it launched through the air as if by a catapult or a trebuchet, and it lands on top of Zebulon Pike's head and squishes him flat. Uh, Without Pike there, a bunch of wild men, many from Kentucky, they went nuts and they burned the capital, attacked women, children, the elderly. We looted, we pillaged, we acted like Vikings. And of course, the British and Canadians said, we won't forget that. And sure Mm -hmm. enough, um, August of uh, 1814, the British finally defeated Napoleon. And with Napoleon out of the way, now they can focus on these pesky American mosquitoes, buzzing around Canada. And they sailed a flotilla of warships, the largest expeditionary force ever to leave British shores at the time. And they planned a three-prong attack to annihilate America, one from the north from Canada, one up to New Orleans, Mississippi, and the other one straight into the heart, Chesapeake. They're gonna hit Baltimore and Washington. And um, we have a general named William Winder who is basically a coward. He's running around scared to death Uh, And General and uh, Secretary Armstrong, the uh, war secretary, basically says they'll never attack Washington. Well, the British land under General Robert Ross with an army that defeated Napoleon and they're marching to Washington. We scramble militias, clerks, farmers, blacksmiths, a mismatch. And we meet them at a place called Bladensburg, if anybody's heard of that in Maryland. It's about six miles east of Washington. Now, we should be able to hold the British. They have 4,500 men marching, but only about 1,000 are in the advance. The rest are way behind lying on the road. Why? They weren't used to that heat and humidity of Washington in the summers. I live in South Florida and I think Was- I love Washington and Maryland, but I think it's even more humid than South Florida in the summers. And they're wearing wool uniforms, right? Um, so, um, plus, there's a river with one bridge. I think all of us in this audience could hold off an army at a bridge, right? It's a choke point, it's a killing point. You just line up and fire into it. General Ross and the British arrive and they're thinking, oh no, there's 6,500 Americans on the other side of the bridge. But Ross with his field glasses looks and says, they're not wearing uniforms. A lot of them don't have normal muskets. They're in terrible positions. They didn't take the high ground. They didn't position their artillery, right? We made every mistake in the book. He says, you know what? We can get rid of these guys through Congreve rockets. That's like a firework show. So they launch a couple rockets into the air and they explode and the Americans drop their guns and run. We run. James Madison, the president, and James Monroe, the secretary of state, are almost killed in the battle because they're almost trampled to death by our army. Uh, they don't call it, historians, we don't call it the Battle of Bladensburg. We call it the Bladensburg races. And General Ross said, the only reason we didn't finish off the Americans, one, he said it was too hot and humid. He said, secondly, they ran too fast. They ran, quote, unquote, like sheep before dogs. So now the British marched into the city unopposed, ready to burn. Uh, and they did. They started off uh, that evening around 8 p.m., August 24, 1840. They burned the Capitol then the White House. Then they would burn the Treasury War and State Departments. We set fire to our naval yards to deny them all of our ships and rope and everything else. Uh, they shot Congreve rockets onto the roof of the Capitol and White House, but it didn't ignite. So what they did was they went inside, piled up all the wood, and used the oil, the fuel from the Congreve rockets. And then they lit big fires inside. It was windy, and before you know it, the city was burning. There's two things that basically saved us. Three. One, Dolly Madison, the great Dolly Madison, our best social hostess in history. Madison's out in the field with the army. He leaves Dolly back at the White House with uh, the butler, French John, and two teenage enslaved folks, a boy and a girl. And um, he leaves a colonel and 100 men surrounding the White House to save Dolly. Dolly looks out the window and all 100, one of them run. He sends a note back with a rider telling Dolly to get out of the building. He's worried she's gonna be burned, captured, or killed. She sends the rider back with the letter. The letter survives. I reprinted it in two of my books. What is she saying in the letter? I refused to abandon my post. I wrote that Dolly had bigger cojones than the generals. She even wrote saying if the, the only one back in the city, a couple of ladies, she said if the ladies and I had enough cannons, we'd roll one out of every window and defend this building. At the 11th hour, when she climbed onto the roof and saw a massive cloud of dust, that's thousands of boots marching into the city on dirt roads. Only then did she leave, but not before saving the priceless artifacts, including the Gilbert Stuart portrait of George Washington in all-black silk, massive portrait. She said he can't even cut it out of the frame. She made him get an axe and chop the frame. She wouldn't even let him roll it up, laid it flat on a wagon. She runs around risking her life to save history. That's my kind of gal. Um, The other one was a young clerk named Stephen Pleasanton for whom I dedicated the book. It's a great hero from history who's been forgotten. Stephen Pleasanton was a 20-something clerk in the Library of Congress in Capitol. Library of Congress used to be in the Capitol. He gets drafted, everybody's drafted. He's at Bladensburg with his colonel, Colonel Magruder. And he says, I'm leaving, I gotta go back to the Capitol. Magruder says, well, you'll be court-martialed. He says, well, then court-martial me because I'm leaving for a full day. He drives Colonel Magruder nuts saying, I've got to go back. Magruder gets so tired of him. He can't afford to court-martial him. He doesn't have any men to spare. He says, then just leave. Get out of my sight. Pleasanton runs back to the White House, uh, the Capitol. Why? He saves the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and our national treasures. Now there's no carriages, no horses, because everybody had fled. He literally runs outside of the city and finds one of those two-wheeled ox carts with a cow. And he goes, you know, back into the city, full of the cow. And he loads everything up, and then he goes down the road. There's two roads in and out. He chose one. The other road, Maryland Avenue, he sees the cloud of dust. The British are marching in as he's lumbering down the road. The wheel falls off the cart. Fortunately, it's right next to a blacksmith's shop, and the blacksmith had brought it. So he steals the equipment and the wheel and repairs it. And he takes it to a, a little town in Virginia, one of these places, population 17, like Hee Hall. And uh, some of you are too young to know the reference. Um, uh, long story. At any rate, he puts it in a barn. Uh, it turns out the farmer that owns the barn is also the preacher and the sheriff of the town. So he multitasks And uh, Pleasanton puts it in the barn and leaves it there for weeks. And there, all of our national treasures sat, satisfied that the British weren't coming back, he finally brought it back to Washington. Um, And it was talk of moving the capital city out of Washington, maybe back to Philadelphia, but something would happen in Philadelphia that we're gonna talk about in a minute, that uh, deterred them from moving anything to Philadelphia, which was the capital. And uh, Dolly Madison climbs the steps of the burned out building and gives one of these Winston Churchill type speeches about we will rebuild. And they did they kept the capital so we came very close to ceasing to exist as a country in 1814 ross didn't have enough artillery to really hold the city or we would have been in trouble plus ross said it's too easy the americans can't be this incompetent and cowardly he said they're luring me into the city we didn't fall and fell any trees we didn't create any uh you know uh, earthworks or trenches we didn't Harass the back of their supply lines. We did nothing that you do to slow down an army. He said, they can't be this bad. So he thought there must be a surprise. That night when they were in Washington, not one, but two tornadoes apparently touched down. Any of you that have lived there, it's not a place where you get a lot of tornadoes. It's not Oklahoma. And um, the tornadoes and storm killed more men than the Americans. And the British used to London, they weren't used to saying something like this. Uh, They described one officer was trying to keep the men from running. He was on a horse, and the officer and the horse went flying horizontally. So it must have been a heck of a storm. Um, One soldier who was quite um, uh, conspiratorial, I guess, started to unnerve the whole army. He was screaming, it's not tornadoes. It's the finger of George Washington. It's come down (laughs) to exact revenge. So the British left and re-endured. So that's our, our first story. Our second story is about the book, uh, that Sarah discussed. It's called America's First Plague. that also just came out this summer as the new car smell. Yes. Um, why America's First Plague? That's what they called it back then. Newspapers, politicians. Uh, the year was 1793. That would be George Washington's first year of a second term. Uh, per capita, this would be the worst pandemic to ever strike this country. Killed more people than COVID, than the Spanish Influenza in 1918, or SARS, or avian flu, or AIDS, or any other scourge. Um, But yet nobody knows anything about it. The backstory to it is just irresistible and bizarre. So it goes back to 1792. There were a group of abolitionists and missionaries who met in London. And honorably, nobly, they wanted to end slavery. Good. However, the way they would go about it is so condescending, so racist and so colonial by our standards today. What they said was, you know, we can't just write essays to end slavery. We can't lobby politicians. We've been doing, the world's been doing that. Slavery is too entrenched. People are making too much money off of it. We've got to come up with something else. So they came up with an idea. Here's the idea. Why don't we buy a spot of land in Africa? We'll go there and we'll teach these heathen, ungodly savages to pray to Jesus, wear clothing and eat with a fork. And therefore, we'll show that they're civilized and the world will then say, ha, ah, we shouldn't enslave them. So that's their idea. Now, by today's standards, this is pathetic. So they buy an island, just a couple mile little island called Baloma, sometimes spelled with a U, sometimes spelled with an O, near Benin near Sierra Leone, Guinea-Bissau, that part of West Africa. They buy this little island. Of course, they don't ask the locals who live there if they can buy their island. And they raise money and they buy three ships. The main flagship is called the Henke, H-A-N-K-E-Y. And a couple hundred missionaries set sail. Now, who they didn't take with them to this uncharted island off the coast of Africa was sailors, soldiers, farmers, carpenters, people you need to survive. They didn't know the language. They're wearing puritanical clothing and they arrive during the rainy season in the summer. So um, as they're on their way, everything goes wrong. The shipping captain doesn't know what he's doing. They get lost, they run aground. On the way they encounter um, some Portuguese ships. The Portuguese are operating out of the region, region and the Portuguese tell them, you're going to Beloma, Benin, don't go. Horrible things have happened there. Satan, evil spirits, horrible things happen. There was an old saying, it said, beware the bite of Benin." Beware the bite of Benin. For every one that comes out, 40 go in. But they said, God's with us. We're going to do something. So they arrive. They unload the cows and the pigs and the chickens and the goats. Uh, They take all the wooden hammers ashore. They do what Western folks do, they start burning down all the forests to create farm fields. And the locals arrive. They're called the Canabex And the missionaries are aghast because the locals are naked. And they're also aghast at descriptions. They said their skin was evil, it was dark, and they had broad noses and full lips. and So you could see the racism and shock coming from them. So one of the leaders uh, gets a white flag, which has zero cultural reference, relevance. Right? gets a white flag and walks out. Turns out the Canabex, were cannibals. Uh, they chop off the leader's arm and eat him and his arm in front of everybody. Then they attack everybody on the beaches and people are running for their lives back to the henky. Um, they get back on board the ship. Of course, you can imagine the unnerved feeling. In the morning, they wake up and find out that all their horses, pigs, chickens were eaten, along with all their comrades. And there's bones all over the place. So wow, OK, not off to a good start. Um, They eventually call themselves the Canabex chickens because every day when the Canabex were hungry, they just dragged one off the boat and ate them. Um, It's the rainy season. They can't farm. They're afraid to go off the boat. Now they're starting to starve to death. So what they do is they go into the interior and they shoot monkeys out of the forest. They notice the monkeys are acting really, really weird. And they bring the monkeys and unknown to them a disease back on board the Henke. So eventually they're down to just a few people and they know they're done. So they make the decision to forgo their expedition, this grand experiment to end slavery, and they're going to sail back to London. As they're sailing, they meet, uh, and, and they're dying by the day, not just from the cannabis, but more dying from myster- some mysterious disease. They have no idea what it is, but it's killing them on a regular basis, and it's a foul disease. So they're sailing back, and they're stopped by two British warships that say you can't sail up the coast, the pirates, the French and Spanish are hunting British ships and you didn't bring any cannons or Navy or or Marines. So you got to sail all the way across the Atlantic to a British Island and wait and then be escorted back. So they don't know how to sail across the Atlantic. So both British warships give up two sailors to help them. And the two British warships sail back to their patrol unbeknownst to the people on the Henke People on the, the two British ships, the sailors stuck dying daily. And eventually, these are ghost ships just floating around with everybody dead on board. The disease went on board the ships. So the Henke sails across the Atlantic. This ship would end up being the super spreader event of the 18th century. Probably a higher per capita percentage of people in the Western Hemisphere died from this ship than any other event. So the ship sails to Barbados, British controlled. And within two days of docking in Barbados, you guessed it, everybody's dying in Barbados. So they figure out everybody started to die after the Henke docked. So they kicked the Henke out of Barbados. So it went to St. Vincent, another British controlled island. And you guessed it, two days after docking, everybody starts dying. So they kick it out of there. goes to Grenada, a spice island. Any nutmeg fans out there? Good nutmeg in there. Anyway, they go to Grenada. Now, if you've been to Grenada, there's a large British fort on a hill overlooking the ocean. And that is one of the more powerful forts in the Caribbean. The British use that to defend their West Indies possessions. But within two days, everybody's dying in Grenada. And it's particularly bad in Grenada to the point where the garrison, there's not enough soldiers left to defend the fort, the island or British possessions. The British sail... uh, uh, 700, they rush on boats, 700 more soldiers over to garrison. That There's a lieutenant named Howard who wrote that 500 of the 700 died and wrote that eventually in Grenada, nobody buries the dead because they don't want to get close to them. And it's like a medieval 1340s play, bring out your dead, bodies piled up in the fort, in the streets, at the port. So they kick the hanky out. And the Henke decides to go to uh, St. Domingue. Today it's called Haiti, French possession. Now this is France's crowned possession. Hey, at St. Domingue, Haiti produces a good percentage of France's rum, sugarcane, molasses, so it's gold. Now slavery is a unimaginably horrific institution. Uh, Many years ago, I did a study where I I looked at all the leading, like middle school and high school textbooks, and all the leading college textbooks, and how do they present slavery? They all basically start off by saying, quote unquote, slaves were brought to America. I don't think brought is the right word. I would use rape, commodified, shackled, branded, beaten, sold. But it's particularly bad in Haiti. Uh, For example, there were so few whites, so many hundreds of thousands of enslaved folks, so much money being made that the white population there was particularly ruthless. Two things they did on a daily basis, arbitrarily to slaves, to scare the you know what, out of them. They'd bury them to their necks, pour molasses on them, and let bugs eat them alive. Just leave them there until they were eaten alive. Secondly, they would put them in a barrel of rum, empty, uh, seal it, drive metal stakes through it, iron stakes through it, and then roll them down a the hill. Uh, just arbitrary kind of cruelty. So an uprising starts in Haiti led by Toussaint Louverture, if anybody knows that name, the Black Napoleon. He would lead the world's first successful slave uprising. Um, now, to take nothing away from Louverture, I mean that, but right as the revolution started, Guess what ship arrives in what is Port-au-Prince? A hanky. And within a couple of days, the whites are dropping like flies all across the island. Napoleon and France do not want to lose this possession, so they send 50,000 soldiers over. Almost all of them die or get sick. Yeah, Toussaint L'Ouverture even said, we'll just let the rainy season finish the work. Um, what was aboard this ship? A mosquito. Yellow fever, Adidas Egypti, in Latin, the unwelcome Egyptian. Uh, It's the female that spreads the disease. They bite someone infected, and then the next person they bite, you get it. Yellow fever is a foul disease. Uh, Eventually, your liver or kidneys cease to work. Your throat becomes so swollen and inflamed you can't swallow. Some people die of lack of water. Uh, Your eyes and skin turn yellowish you from every orifice you ooze or bleed or vomit a black bile from every orifice, Uh, it's it's just foul. Um, And at the time they didn't know what caused it and there was no known cure. So you can imagine the fear and chaos surrounding us. So the ship is not kicked out of Haiti uh, because there's no one left alive to run the port, uh, but they decide to leave. Now the Christian missionaries there, what they did was they sold seats on the ship to help people escape. Uh, I taught at the University of Hawaii for five years. His first white population were Christian missionaries in 1820. And in Hawaii, they always say the missionaries went to do good and end up doing really well. Um, same thing there. They charged an absorbent amount of money. And anybody that could afford it sold everything and jumped on the hanky and it fled to death on Haiti. And it went to Philadelphia. Which was the capital at the time uh our first capital was new york city here um and nobody liked new york city uh jefferson and the southerners said it it appears that they have 10 months of winter that's what they said uh fisher ames a congressman from massachusetts said it's nothing but quote unquote hogs dogs and garbage this is before broadway and pizza so um no one liked new york city so they wanted to leave but the problem is From 1775 on, we didn't have a capital, a permanent seat of government. Who starts a revolution and fights a war for independence without having a capital? Not the right way to start. There were over 30 cities competing to be the capital for this country. New York, Philadelphia, Annapolis, uh, all over. The problem was every city wanted themselves to be the capital, and they would refuse to allow any other city. Why? Pride, money. Imagine you own land in Annapolis or Hartford or Albany. If you own land and the entire federal government, Congress and military move in, you've increased the value of your land a hundredfold, right? Uh, We couldn't find a capital. We spent 30 years from 1775 to November 1, 1800, arguing about it. Ben Franklin used to make a joke. He said, we should just have multiple capitals and move around. Because the the, the debate was so heated, and Congress was so unpopular, Ben Franklin said, why don't we build a Trojan horse? Let's put Congress inside, sneak it up to the city quickly, get out, do your business, and scram before they know what happened. Um, So the problem was when they moved to New York City, we didn't have a capital, and Washington's going to be inaugurated right down the road from where it was speaking at Federal Hall, a couple steps. So they wanted to move the capital. No one knew where to move it. It was basically resolved on June 20th, 1790 over dinner. Hamilton and Jefferson, Madison was along. Those of you that saw the musical Hamilton, who saw the musical? Okay, this was the room where it happened. Okay, so they cut a deal. It'll be New York City for one year. It'll be Philadelphia for nine. And that'll give George Washington a decade to build his capital. So it goes to Philadelphia, America's Athens. It had Ben Franklin, the first sanitation departments, first public safety. Ben Franklin hung lanterns up on a pole and had people with stilts like in a circus light them. Um, Circulating library, the first medical centers, Um, 50,000 people, our largest city at the time. Uh, And that's where they docked. And two days after the hanky docked, everybody starts to die. And that's the great plague. Uh, Adidas Egypti from the Mosquito. Now, there's a sad lesson here. As an historian, who's, this is my 33rd year as a professor, 48th book, I think. Um, I know that we always overreact whenever there's a crisis. And sure enough, we did. And at first, not knowing what it was, we blamed immigrants. That always happens. Then, we started blaming Blacks, the Black community. And then we blamed the Jewish community. It was called the Synagogue of Satan. And there were uh, quarantine centers and roving vans, bands of vigilantes attacking one another, finger pointing. It was God awful. So the mayor of Philadelphia, Matthew Clarkson, and George Washington had to do something. So they got a group of esteemed doctors to study this and make a recommendation. And the recommendation called for masks. So they asked everybody to wear masks. The Federalists, who were like John Adams, Ben Franklin, uh, Hamilton, Washington, uh, John Jay, more northern, more educated, they all wore masks. The anti-Federalists, Southern, conservative, Jefferson, slavers, Madison, Monroe, they said, it's our freedom to not wear a mask. And there was a huge fight over masking. Then the committee recommended social distancing. I kid you not. C'est plus ça change, right? C'est plus le même chose, the more the things change. Uh, What they did is they realized uh, we should probably avoid one another. Uh, And they also found out from family members of the dead that people that died were often out at sunset. Now, they didn't know it was a mosquito, but today we know that's when mosquitoes are active, especially in humid. And by the way, Philadelphia is a great place, but I think it's a couple thousand feet below sea level. Right? <laughs> Philadelphia is hot and humid in the summers, right? Especially along the waterfront. Um, so they told people, don't gather at sunset. And preachers called their flocks out at sunset and opened defiance, saying, we're going to pray it away. Then they asked people to walk on opposite sides of the street, and they refused to do so, saying it's our right to do whatever we want. And, it, it, and then the finger pointing started. And the Anti-Federalists blame the Federalists. Um, it's their fault. Why? Didn't matter. Did no evidence needed. People will believe anything. Um, and there it goes. And of course, we get a huge fight between Hamilton and Jefferson. Once again, Hamilton representing the Federalists who want to mask and behave and use science. And Jefferson representing the anti-federalists and so freedom and right to do what we want. And the fight came over what to do about this. So there's basically two causes for all diseases, according to Hippocrates. And for 2000 years, medicine and science believed this. One, miasma or miasmata, foul air. So like a swamp or a decaying animal. Well, the ship next to the hanky dumped rotted coffee. So they said, that's it. That's what's causing everybody to die. So all we have to do is clean up the coffee. That was basically the anti-Federalist position. Um, and they cleaned up the coffee and people died wholesale. The second cause of all diseases, is biles or phlegms. Body fluids are not aligned. So what do you do? You leech, you bleed, you purge. So anti-Federalist-oriented physicians, they bled people and they gave them a Mexican poison that caused nonstop vomiting and diarrhea. And of course, after being bled with nonstop diarrhea and vomiting, you didn't get any better, you got worse. So what did they do? They bled you more and gave you more poison. I mean, that didn't work, they gave you more. Hamilton says, I think that Jefferson's followers are killing more people than this mysterious disease. So Hamilton offers an alternative remedy, rest, hygiene, hydrate, let try lemonade, that's what Hamilton says. So Jefferson is backing Dr. Benjamin Rush. You probably have heard of him, America's most famous physician, signer of the declaration. It's easy to love Dr. Rush and easy to loathe Dr. Rush. I'm in the latter category. I present both sides in the book. Rush was an abolitionist, honorable. He proposed alternative diets. He avoided meats. I'm a vegetarian. Um, He even said... um, during the disease, he thought it was contagious. It's not. But he went into homes of the pe- dying people and continued to treat him. He's a brave guy. But on the other hand, Rush was messianic. He would tell everybody, God has not created a disease, a disease that he hasn't given me the answer to. Only I, I know more than all the doctors. I know more than the politicians. I know more than the generals. That's Rush, megalomaniac. Um, Any physician that challenged Rush, Rush destroyed their practice. And Rush is backed by Jefferson, which means the newspapers are spewing all Rush's nonsense. Now Rush bravely goes into the communities, but all he does is bleed, poison, and kill everybody. And he refuses to allow an alternative to treatment. Hamilton's gaining some, making some progress because he's backed by his dad, George, right? The problem is Hamilton and his wife, Elizabeth, or, Eliza, right? Uh, they, get the, they get the yellow fever. So they have to flee to Albany. Uh, so that discredits Hamilton. So this is madness. Uh, we don't have... Uh, George Washington must make the most difficult decision. We have two choices, he says, to the country. We can stay and die, or do the unthinkable, evacuate. And Washington orders the evacuation. The administration cabinet leaves. The military leaves, Congress leaves. We went for 100 days without a government. Today, if we didn't have Congress, we'd probably be okay. But for hundred days, we didn't have a government. Washington's worried about chaos on the streets. People were killing one another, pointing fingers. He's worried about foreign invasion. We've got to get back to governing. So it's absolute madness. 10 to 20% of Philadelphia dies. We don't have completely reliable numbers. It's at least 10%, I estimate. Then, of course, the disease spreads up and down the eastern seaboard. And now we have a pandemic or a plague, as it was called back then. Who helped save it? The Black community. Uh, Reverend Absalom Jones and Reverend Richard Allen. They would be the founders of the AME Church. Anybody knows that? Um, one of the most important and historic Black congregations. They would also create the first black newspaper, first black school, first black. These guys said, this is our chance to prove to the country that the black community deserves a fair shake. And they buried the dead, nobody would bury them. They staffed the hospitals, they fulfilled all public services. They went house to house to find children in the houses. Oftentimes a two-year-old would be sitting there crying and the parents were dead for three days. Uh, they, They stayed and took care of the city. Dr. Benjamin Rush announced, don't worry to the black community, you are immune and I'm talking to God. Well, they died in equal percentages to the white community yet they stayed and did that. Figuring that afterwards, the black community would get a fair shake and after the disease, things went back the way they always were. So how did it end? Uh, Around Halloween, they flew white flags over the hospitals and buildings in Philadelphia, a sign that there were no more new cases. A fall frost killed all the mosquitoes. And a fall frost in Boston and New York killed all the mosquitoes. It would happen later in places like Charleston and Norfolk because it's warmer in the South. So eventually it was a frost that killed the mosquitoes um, and survived. Hey, yet we weren't out of the woods. Washington said, okay, we're going back to Philadelphia. It's time to govern. One problem, where was everyone? You couldn't text them, couldn't announce it on CNN. Uh, He literally sent men on horseback around the country trying to find his generals, colonels, and congressmen, tell everybody to go back to Philadelphia. The other problem, Jefferson and the anti-federalists said, hold on, the Constitution does not give you the right to bring the government back. Washington's mad. He's like, are you kidding me? We need to get back. Jefferson says, it doesn't give you the power. Washington says, well, then we'll meet in Germantown or Lancaster or someplace outside of Philadelphia. Constitution doesn't give you the right. So now we're in a whole huge constitutional debate and the anti-federalists are just holding up everything, if you can imagine that in our politics, nothing being done. Um, So Washington did what he always did. Whenever he couldn't figure something out, he said, Hamilton, solve it. So Hamilton gets it and in a great move that in 1858, Lincoln would borrow this. Jefferson says, it doesn't say that Washington can do this, and Hamilton looks at the Constitution and says, It doesn't say he can't. Washington says, That's good enough for me. Washington good. puts on his hat, rides by himself into the city. Everybody sees George, it's okay, and people come back. In 1858, in the Lincoln Douglas debates, right? Uh, two years before the presidential, they're running for a Senate seat in Illinois, seven state seats, seven debates around Illinois. There were nine congressional districts, two already had debates, so seven in the districts that didn't have debates. Stephen Douglas pulls out a copy of the Constitution, hands it to Lincoln, and says, show me where it says you can end slavery. It doesn't. And Lincoln says, let me see that there, Constitution. He had read Hamilton. He said, well, Judge, show me where it says I can. Um, So uh, we got back to governing. It was our first great crisis, our first great test in the founding era, and we managed to get through by the skin of our teeth, brother against brother, finger pointing. The two political factions, the Federalist and Anti-Federalist, hardened into political parties. It's been downhill since. Um, uh, the great Benjamin Latrobe built the first public water system in Philadelphia. Uh, slavery would slowly come to a close. They ended importation of the slave trade. Uh, now, you could still have slavery until, of course, the 13th Amendment, 1865. But we'd like to think that we ended the importation of slavery because of empathy and humanity. It was mostly disease. They were worried about getting diseases. Somebody put one-on-one together and figured a lot of diseases come from other places. Uh, it, it also resulted in a major population shift. People fled inland to cooler, more high elevation areas away from other people, which had less diseases. So a major impact on the the country. No one wanted to go back to Philadelphia. So this little, some bogs and fields and forests along the edge of the Potomac became our capital city, uh, Washington, uh, D.C. So um, uh, a lot of lessons, a lot of parallels to COVID. And we never seem to learn the lessons of history, do we? We always repeat the mistakes uh, from history. So that's um, the story of America's first plane. Thank you. Questions. All made, and I'll repeat it for everybody sir uh-huh. yep. okay so the Revolutionary War started in the spring of 1775 John Adams moves into the new city yet unnamed it would be Washington in the, in the district of Christopher Columbus which they shortened took the feminine Columbia uh, November 1 1801. So for 30 years, we all, we went to Philadelphia, we went to Lancaster, we went to Annapolis, we went, the, the, the Continental Congress moved around. Uh, on more than one occasion, they were chased out of the town by the British Army. So we had all these interim ad hoc capitals meeting on the fly. We did not have a permanent seat of government. Um, there was something called the 1790 Residence Act, and that was supposed to Declare the capital. And during the Constitutional Convention, they never picked the capital city. George Washington wrote if we pick a capital, nobody will sign the Constitution. So let's just have a government. We'll figure the capital, where that government's going to govern later. Washington and the founders proposed kicking the can down the road, which is what we do today politically. Um, what they did is uh, they said that the capital will be 100 miles square. It says that in the constitution, 10 miles square. So hundred miles, 10 miles square, meaning it would be bigger than Paris and London. I mean, that's pretty audacious. Um, 1790 Residence Act finally said, we'll build one there if dot, dot, dot. Uh, And it almost didn't pass. Uh, The first time they voted on the 1790 Residence Act, they were four votes shy in the Senate. Now that's a lot because the partisan politics back then were just like today, nobody flips. Secondly, only had a few senators. So four senators back then, it's like having 15 today. That's never gonna get across that hurdle. Um, And they voted right before lunch and it was four votes shy. And this is Washington's dream, a capital city. So Washington says, um, tells Madison and Hamilton, call for another vote. They say, are you mad? You know, nobody's gonna change their mind over lunch. And then you're gonna lose again and you're gonna start to look desperate. Then it's going to be harder to cut a deal, right? Washington said, call for another vote. What George wanted, George got. Over lunch, he's four votes shy. Over lunch, George visited four senators. All four flipped their vote after lunch. And yet the bill was the same, so we didn't offer him anything. So we're not really sure. They didn't write about it. We're not sure what George did. This is what I think he did. Imagine you're freshman senator sitting in your office. All of a sudden the doorwell fills up the door and George walks in. Probably said something to the effect of, son, I'm going to need you to do something. Sir, yes, sir. He flipped him and went back and had lunch and he got his capital. So it was, it was, it was uh, 25 years, 75 to 80, uh, to, 1800 rather, before we had a permanent seat. So ad hoc, moved around. We didn't use Ben Franklin's Trojan horse, though. Good. Yes, Sarah. Um,
0: we have a question from the online chat. Um, who are some of the physicians who were disagreeing with Rush on how to treat the plague?
1: Good. So Rush was the most important physician, citing miasma or miasmata and body f- phlegms. Uh, There's a guy named Jean de Visee, D-E-V-E-Z-E. He was uh, French. And he lived in St. Domingue, Haiti. So he saw tropical diseases. He saw mosquito-borne illnesses. He understood it. So he was challenging. However, De Vise had marginal English. He was an immigrant and he arrived here on one of the boats sailing with the hanky. So, so nobody listened to him versus Benjamin Rush. Uh, there were also two young doctors that staffed for free what they called the Bush Hill Fever Hospital initially. These guys were brand new minted medical doctors, late 20s, they had no political base of power. So everybody else was afraid to take on Rush. As Hamilton takes on Rush and Jefferson, it empowers a few others to come forward. But then when Hamilton gets sick and leaves, the rest know if we take on Rush, we have no livelihood, no business. So. Unfortunately, Rush and Jefferson could be really Machiavellian about their politics. Cross me and it's the end of the world for you. Um, uh, George Washington had a volcanic temper. Hamilton was an arrogant hothead, but they both sought to break bread with people. And they're the type that you could disagree with them in the morning and by that evening they're taking out for dinner. Um, But not so much with Rush and Jefferson. They were very thin-skinned. You might tell that I've never been a big Thomas Jefferson fan. Um, brilliant, no question. Uh, hypocritical all the time. Um, so yeah, good. Who else? Yes. One more question. Here, uh, you me give a microphone? Yellow fever, what's the status of that
0: now?
1: Yellow fever. So um, we didn't know what it was. Yellow fever has been a scourge to the world. Um, uh, there was a medical doctor who's now very famous. His name was Walter Reed. And during the Spanish-American War, that's 1898, Spain has you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers in Cuba. We send a few people down and we beat the Spanish army, taking nothing away from Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders and others. But one of the reasons we won was the Spanish contracted yellow fever and their massive army was sick. They were all infirmaries. Um, very few could fight. Walter Reed does some experiments and realizes it might be a mosquito. So around 1899, 1900, he and a colleague put mosquitoes that are killing people, they put them in a um, container and they put their arms in and infect themselves. Walter Reed's colleague died from it. I mean, so this is either stupid or brave or both. Walter Reed gets sick and realizes it's, Um, In the 1930s, a guy developed a vaccination and won the Nobel Prize uh, to rid the world of yellow fever. Uh, Each year now, uh, about 30,000 people around the world die from it. It's mostly in places like Africa. Um, The World Health Organization, the UN, Doctors Without Borders and other admirable groups are trying their best. We have an easy cure. But that doesn't mean it makes it to the people in places that need it. So, still about 30,000 people a year die from this thing throughout the tropics. Uh, and a couple hundred thousand people contract it. So, it's not one of these diseases that has a 90% mortality rate. So, why were the rates so ridiculously high in 1793? Because the people that got it were bled, purged, poisoned. You know, if we just left them alone, people would have recovered. Uh, so, and though, by the way, Dr. Rush gets it. And he doesn't leave, he stays and treats people. So, you know, one would hope that he would have left and spare lives, but um, yeah, sir. Sure. Didn't Walter Reed do a lot of his research at the hospital on Roosevelt County? Walter Reed did research right on Roosevelt Island, Hop and skip, yes, he sure did. And was a great man and a great, and what a legacy, right? That an important medical institution for those who served honorably. And by the way, I see a uh, US Army, thanks for your service, sir. Uh, what a what a wonderful legacy for this man that served uh, uh, his country and and those in uniform so honorably. Yeah, and risked his life to try to find a cure for this thing. I think the guy's name was Tealer T H E I L E R that developed the vaccine. Max Um uh, So, yeah, Sarah.
0: Another question from Lynn in the chat. Do we know why the people on the hanky lived long enough on the ship to be able to travel around and keep infecting people?
1: Good. So the hanky sails from uh, Baloma, Benin, the area around Guinea-Bissau. And it sails up, as I said, it's turned away by the British warships and sails the whole way across the ocean. It never would have made it, but fortunately, those British sailors that were unloaded from their warships helped them to get there. Now, mosquitoes are short-lived, uh, so if it dies, the, the disease ends. However, the female mosquito would die while it's laying its eggs, the larva would hatch, bite someone who's infected, and then pass it on to everybody else. Die and lay their eggs and die, then they're off. So it's like generation as they sail across. Um, during the, the the voyage, people are dying regularly. So by the time they get there, it's a skeletal crew. But what they did not do to the people on the hanky, they did not purge them, bleed them, you know, poke and prod them. They just left them lie there. And some of them went through the cycle, and after several days they lived, building up some immunity. And uh, so enough of them lived to sail the ship and get to uh, Barbados and all the other islands, Grenada, and all the way to Philadelphia. Um, But it was a fraction. By the way, of the hundreds that originally set sail from England on this missionary expedition to teach the savages to pray to Jesus and wear clothing and use a fork, uh, only one made it back. Uh, the captain who was in charge, Philip Beaver. Uh, so wow, it took a, toll on, took a toll on everybody. One person lived to tell the tale. It's like a pirate story. And he wrote his, uh, his account of it all. Uh, and it's pretty gruesome. You, interestingly, I read his uh, diary. And after a couple of weeks, he would just write, uh, Mary, Joe, and someone else died today. I mean, he just didn't even, he just stopped us because it was just like, oh, today we lost five. It was Bill, three women, and a kid. You know, it just he just stopped because it was everybody was was perishing from this thing. So Ambassador Gillian. Would you talk a little more about
0: George Washington? How is it he is the kid that he was not a young man then? How was his health? And was he protected in some special way by others? Good. Yeah. Okay. Before you answer that's gonna be our last question. Okay. So you'll be wrapping it up.
1: Good one to end on. Um so Washington was a very vigorous man. Uh, he had a life marked with mostly good health. You know, we know about losing his teeth. We know he had some disease. We know he was, fell sick from time to time, but uh, a very vigorous guy. Um, during when Washington, Washington made one trip out of the country during his life. He went to Barbados, um, where with his uh, older half-brother Lawrence, when he was about 19, George. Lawrence was a British officer uh, George was an uneducated, untraveled farmer, so he was so excited. Um, when they arrive there, Lawrence's job is to meet with traders, politicians, tour the military installations, make relations. Lawrence is too sick. We believe he's dying of tuberculosis. Lawrence doesn't get out of bed, sending young George. George gets to wear the uniform, gets to go to parties, gets to, he loves it. He goes down to the capital city of Bridgetown every night and dances the night away with the local ladies. He contracts a disease. Uh, as I wrote in one book, he enjoyed the tropical fruits of the West Indies a little too much. Um, uh, what George does is he realizes there's something that they were doing then. They were doing a variolation. It's like a vaccine, an early inoculation. You know, you scrape a little pus and you infect yourself. And he realized that that worked during the beginning of the revolution, George ordered his army to be vaccinated, variolated. Even Martha, Mrs. W, and Martha was a hypochondriac. I mean, major. In fairness to Martha, she has four kids and loses all four of them. Um, Who wouldn't be? Martha just was beside herself, but she spent every winter of the war with George. Loved Cokie Roberts, big fan, loved her book about the founding mothers, but she said, Martha was so brave, she spent two winters of the war, every winter of the war. And that meant traveling hundreds of miles in open carriers, unpaved roads, through enemy territory, no GPS, okay? And she was with, her. what did she do in camp? Fed the soldiers, cooked for them. I'm not sure if it was matzo ball soup or chicken noodle, one of those probably. Cooked for the army, knitted scarves, held the hands when they were dying, read their letters from loved ones. They called her Lady Washington. She mothered the army. Um, but George said to Martha, if you're going to come and see me, you have to get variolated. So they lived. A lot of the British didn't. They did. So to what extent that a variolation, I'm not sure. Or just luck. Some of us, for example, I've never had COVID. Uh, I've never had the flu. I've never had a cavity and never lost a tooth. Uh, I think part of it's good living, but part of it's luck. Now I was. Vaccinated and boosted, and you know, the whole nine yards. But um, yeah, he didn't get it. Um, thank goodness. And some of his aides were begging him to leave, but he went back to Mount Vernon, a uh, little less populated, still coastal, right? Still in the Potomac. So thank goodness he didn't get it. He left the only officer of the entire army left back in New York's uh, Philadelphia was Henry Knox. He was George's Artillery General and Secretary of War. Truman would change the name to Secretary of Defense. Henry Knox was in charge with the War Department because they needed some military. Henry Knox sends a letter to George Washington, which still exists, saying, everybody's dead but me. So Henry Knox fled, going to New York to see friends and family. A group captures him, these roving bands of gangs. They put him in a quarantine center. He's yelling, I'm Henry Knox. I'm the Secretary of War. I need to write to Washington. Nope. And they locked him up. Afterwards, Henry Knox, Henry Knox weighed several hundred pounds. was a big fellow. Henry Knox wrote to George afterwards saying, I tried my best to escape, but I couldn't squeeze through any. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we really went without a government. Fortunately, Henry didn't get it. And in a quarantine center with sick people and mosquitoes buzzing, he didn't get it. And George didn't get it. Martha didn't get it. The mayor of Philadelphia, Mayor Powell with one L, he was known as a revolutionary mayor. He was the great mayor during the revolution. Mayor Powell says, I will not leave my beloved city. His wife, Eliza Willing Powell, George and Martha begged him to come to Mount Vernon, I will not leave. So Eliza Willing Powell, one of George's best friends, by the way, uh, she probably more than anyone talked George into a second term, we still need you. Eliza said, I stay with my husband. Mayor Powell says, I don't leave my city. He got it and died, but Eliza didn't catch it. So yeah, dumb luck. Thanks, Ambassador Gillian. Thanks, everybody. And Sarah, good luck with the next phase of your career. Thanks for tuning in and out of Zoom land. Happy to be back for my umpteenth lecture here at Francis County. Thank you.
0: Uh, so, just a few closing announcements. Uh, thank you for those, who want to share that wonderful information with sure. us. If you want to learn more about America's First Plague and you're here in person, we have the books you can see me in the back once I wrap all of this up. Um, otherwise, it's available where books are sold if you are at home and cannot make it down here. Have you enjoyed today's lecture? And would like to stay up to date with all the museum programs you can join our mailing list at francis you can also find our calendar of programs there our next lecture is going to be on our usual day thursday thursday october 5th thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the american revolutionary era with the public if you would like to donate you can also do that on our website francis Um, Thank you again for joining us at another Francis Tavern Museum Lecture, and we hope to see you again soon.